They are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard, and they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can, both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That was President Trump on Saturday trying to pressure Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find him the votes to help overturn the results of the presidential election. The phone call, secretly taped by Raffensperger's office and then leaked to the news media, may stand as the ultimate capstone to Trump's presidency, a bizarre hour-long rant in which the country's chief executive repeated baseless conspiracy theories about dead voters and shredded ballots, at some points trying to cajole Georgia's chief election official to unearth votes that don't exist, and at other times threatening Raffensperger with criminal consequences if he didn't do so. It was, as one longtime White House advisor put it, the ultimate example of Trump's descent into, quote, mad King George lunacy. We'll tell the backstory of the Trump-Raffensperger phone call with one of the reporters who broke the story, and then we'll talk to Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, one of the few in the GOP who has spoken out against the president, about why he's genuinely worried about the prospect of violence at the Capitol when Congress tallies the Electoral College votes on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So first of all, Happy New Year. Uh, It looks like there's going to be no shortage of skullduggery in 2021. So we hope our uh, our listeners have their seatbelts fastened for another wild year. But I got to say, I, I just two quick thoughts on this phone call. I mean, we all I certainly remember uh, the uh, smoking gun phone call that brought down Richard Nixon that revealed he was trying to get the CIA to interfere in the FBI investigation into Watergate. And uh, some have compared that to this phone call in which the president seems to be pressuring Raffensperger to find him votes, uh, which would on its face seem to be illegal. But actually, after having listened to it in its entirely, the word that came to my mind was pathetic. It was just pathetic to hear the president grasping at straws, trying to find something that might stick, pointing to, you know, baseless claim after baseless claim, nothing to substantiate it. And, you know, Raffensperger and his chief lawyer, Ryan Germany, to their credit, would have none of it. 
Yeah, I think pathetic is a good way to describe it. You know, he was pleading with them to uh, help him stave off this inevitable defeat. Inevitable defeat. I mean, it already is a defeat. But he was like, I think he said, you know, come on, guys. Can't you do this for me for old time's sakes? You know, like uh, the character in The Godfather who was pleading <laughs> with uh, Michael Corleone's lawyer to spare his life. You know, pathetic, but at the same time, you know, deeply troubling. And I think a sign of how much trouble President Trump can still make uh, between now and uh, January 20th and beyond. By the way, Isakoff, you know, you said that this may be the final capstone of his presidency, but he does have 16 days before he officially leaves office. So how many times have we predicted yeah. uh, that, you know, something that's happened is like, how know. crazy can it get is your is your question. Right. And, uh, right. Well, and, and as the walls are closing in on him, you know, he gets crazier and crazier. So I'm expecting there will be more of this, not not less. Look, we just had that extraordinary letter from 10 former secretaries of defense warning about uh, the possibility that the president might invoke martial law and take other steps to overturn the results of the election. So clearly, there are serious people who are seriously worried about where this is headed. Now, I think we know in broad strokes on Wednesday, January 6th, the Electoral College tally begins by the Congress. There will be these objections from uh, Republican members of the House and the Senate. Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley and company have all said they're going to do this. But, you know, it is... I suppose encouraging that we are starting to see more and more Republicans speaking out and saying enough of this nonsense. We're going to have one of them uh, on the show today, Adam Kinzinger. He's been pretty consistent about how damaging the president's conduct is here. Uh, but, uh, you know, Liz Cheney putting out this, uh, you know, very detailed memo, factually referring feuding all of the many allegations that the president and his allies have made. That was pretty extraordinary. And uh, you put it together with Dick Cheney being one of those former defense secretaries signing that letter. You are starting to see at least some Republicans getting some backbone saying, you know, you, Mr. President, have now crossed a line where we cannot go with you. What did you call it before? The uh, the Cheney counter coup? Yes, that's right. This is the Cheney counter coup. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, um, I think that there is a sense that this is a real moment of potential crisis, that as the walls close in on this president, that he could resort to really extreme, not just rhetoric, but extreme action. You know, he, he already seriously considered uh, invoking the Insurrection Act once before during the racial protests, and he did not do that. There was some opposition at the time. But you'll remember at that time that the military, even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was somewhat more acquiescent than you would hope the military brass would be actually uh, going out to the church, crossing Lafayette Square and all and, that. And I think He's, Esper has regretted that ever since and has made that clear. Yeah. Right. And Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. 
But, you know, I think there is real concern. And it's not just the former secretaries of defense and senior Republicans, including Paul Ryan, who came out with a very strong statement criticizing what Trump and other Republicans are doing, and and Pat Toomey, the outgoing senator from Pennsylvania, but also just breaking this afternoon on Monday as we record this uh, podcast, 170 CEOs of some of America's biggest and most important businesses came out with a statement calling for the certification of the election. They include uh, Lawrence Fink, the chairman of BlackRock, Logan Green and John Zimmer of Lyft, Brad Smith of Microsoft, Albert Bourla of Pfizer. So, you know, titans of industry as well who are feeling the need to come forward and to say this uh, has to end. And it's extraordinary that they would have to do this. But but on the other hand, we should all be grateful uh, that people are standing up to this insanity that's going on right, right now. Right. Look, uh, in the next couple of days are going to be, you know, really rocky. You got Trump going down to Georgia, riling up his base. Uh, we'll talk endlessly, no doubt, about uh, these claims of fraud uh, and the fact that he's been, you know, he believes he's been robbed of uh, a re-election. You'll have the challenge on Wednesday, which could go for hours, because if, in fact, each there is an objection to each of the six states, the House and Senate will have to meet separately and debate for two hours each of those objections. But at the end of the day, we know the result. We know that Joe Biden will be declared president. And, uh, you know, at that point, We'll see if Trump goes completely berserk and <laughs> launches a war or declares martial law, or I think more more likely he just uh, just just folds. fizzles. He just fizzles. He fizzles. Uh, yeah. Look, and, he, look, and, I, and, I and I've been told. I was speaking to a close White House advisor today who said, "Look, he's gonna he's gonna come back to Washington for this week." He'll watch what happens. He'll see Biden be declared the president. And then he'll just leave town. He'll just go to Florida. And we may not see him take any further action as president of the United States other than, you know, pardon a whole bunch of people. And he'll skip the inauguration. And and he'll Uh, definitely skip the inauguration. Uh, Yeah, I I agree with that. I think the larger question, it's not, you know, that he's that they're going to be tanks in the streets and he's going to be bunker, you know, bunkered down um, in the White House, uh, you know, refusing to leave. I think the larger question is, you know, with, you know, some 150 Republicans in the House and 12 in the Senate who are standing by him in this, you know, quixotic effort to overturn the election. What happens after he leaves? How much has our democracy, our civic institutions been damaged by all of this? And it's that eternal question, does Trumpism outlast Trump himself? And we just don't know, but well, it will certainly give us a lot uh, to cover uh, in the uh, in the coming year. I was going to say plenty to talk about on Skullduggery. So um, let's dig into uh, our first show of the year uh, with one of the reporters who broke the story of the phone call. We'll get right to it. Now, to talk about this extraordinary phone call, we have Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, one of the reporters who broke the story. Greg, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. 
So quite a scoop that you and the Washington Post uh, had on uh, Sunday. Tell us how this came about, how it is that the Secretary of State came to tape that phone call and how it came into the hands of you and other news media. Yeah, I mean, first off, I think that a lot of these conversations, because they're so litigious, because there's so many false claims out there, there's so many conspiracy theories, there's there's just so much lies and falsehoods out there that a lot of these conversations are being taped, but very rarely do they actually get uh, released, at least in full, right? And we've heard excerpts of tapes before and things like that, but, but, but I don't think we've seen this type of extraordinary one-hour-long conversation or at least not like not in this vein. But um, I had heard on Saturday that there was a conversation between the Secretary of State's and his attorneys and, and the president. Um, I kind of heard that off the record, so didn't report anything Saturday. But then on Sunday, I, I get off a bike ride and I made the mistake of checking my phone and I, I'm getting blown up with messages about, did you see Trump's tweet? Did you see Trump's tweet? Because he had disclosed himself that they had this conversation. And, you know, I can't talk about sources, but I think it's, you know, I can, I can say that the, the Secretary of State himself tweeted, the truth will still soon come out. And I don't know if you like the truth or you don't like the truth or whatever, but, you know, the, the entire recording and all transparency came out so that people could hear it for themselves. And it was a scramble, I think, for the Post, for, for New York Times, for national outlets and outlets like ourselves, like ours as well, to, you know, try to deduce and to get not just excerpts of that call out, but, but also the entire thing out without also jeopardizing innocent people whose names were mentioned on that call, too. One follow-up yeah. to, to that, Greg. Did Raffensperger's office inform the White House that they were taping the phone call? And, and what prompted them to do so in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. On the, on the call, they did not, on the recording of the call, they did not disclose that it was being taped. I don't know if there was some, you know, off-call, offline information about that. But look, I mean, if you're in the Secretary of State's shoes, you've been attacked and ridiculed and berated for weeks now by, by the president and his, and his supporters. He's been, uh, there's been parades of Trump supporters who have gone and driven around outside his house. His wife has gotten death threats. He's had to have a security detail. So things are very fraught. So I, you know, I think just from that perspective, I, I was not surprised to hear that he was taping this conversation, if only because everything he's been, he said has been targeted for ridicule. Um, some, you know, sometimes the, the Republicans and other critics uh, might have a point. Other times it's just been falsehoods. So, Greg, a couple of things. First, just from the tone of Raffensperger on this call, it looked like that, like you know, he'd rather be having you know dental surgery uh, than talking to uh, Donald Trump. I mean, he seemed so uncomfortable. And I gather the White House tried repeatedly to get to him, and I don't know if he was avoiding them because he didn't want to have this conversation. But what was he? You know, it may sound obvious in retrospect, but what was he? concerned about why was he trying to avoid having a conversation with the president of the United States? I mean, I think one of the main reasons he was trying to avoid that conversation is they're in litigation, active litigation right now. That's why when they had this call, it involved his attorney, Ryan Germany, and several of the of the president's attorneys. So that put it in a, in a kind of awkward place to begin with. But yeah, national outlets have reported that the White House has tried to contact Raffensperger no fewer than 
18 times over the last few few weeks. So um, this has been an ongoing uh, attempt from the president. I don't know if you want to call it interference or intervene or just or just to contact and establish a line of communication. But he seems single-mindedly. I shouldn't say single-minded because he's also concerned with Pennsylvania and other states, but he seems particularly obsessed with Georgia. If you just look at his Twitter feed, with all the tweets he's had targeted at not just Secretary Raffensperger, but Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan and, and of course, Governor Brian Kemp for, for not supporting his claims of a, of a flawed Georgia election. And one uh, follow-up, maybe part of the reason he didn't want to talk to the president is also he didn't want to be pressured <laughs> to do something potentially illegal, which clearly he wouldn't have done. But there, there have now been calls for Trump to be investigated for both federally and in Georgia for conspiracy to violate election law, solicitation of uh, people to violate election law, interfering with state officials. Extortion. And, uh, you forgot extortion. 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 Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So this morning, Rassenberger told George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America that um, his office may have a conflict of interest. They would normally investigate allegations of uh, voter fraud. But because he was involved and, and his lawyer was involved in those conversations, I think he suggested they might have to forwarded it to uh, another agency. What's your sense of, A, whether there will be an investigation and who who might conduct that inve investigation if there is? Well, there's already been a formal inquiry uh, request for that lodged by David Worley. He's a senior Democratic member of the state election board. So he's, he's asked Secretary Raffensperger to conduct that investigation. And as you mentioned, uh, this morning, the secretary said, hey, I can't do it because I'm the guy on the other, line, uh, other side of the call. So he's got two main options, and he, he might have others, but um, refer it to the Georgia Attorney General's office. Uh, that's Republican Chris Carr, who has tried to stay out of this, this whole thing at all. He just doesn't, it seems like he just doesn't want to be mentioned in the same breath as Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan at all. Or he could go to the Fulton County District Attorney. That's a newly elected DA um, who ousted the long-serving top prosecutor, Paul Howard not that long ago, and she, her name is Fannie Willis, and um, she sent out a statement earlier on Monday saying she stands ready. If, if she gets the request, she is more than happy to delve into it. And she, I should mention, is Democratic, and the county, Fulton County, is one of the bluest, one of the, one of the biggest Democratic strongholds in the state. Greg, I want to ask you about some of the specific claims that the president made on the phone call and sort of go through them. But just before we do that, what was your reaction when you listened? I was stunned. I was taken aback. I, at first, I thought it would just be him repeating the falsehoods, right? Just repeating a lot of the things that have, that have come up in hearings and in social media and, and whatnot. But to hear him actually say, um, fellas, we need to just find 11,000 votes. Let's just find these votes. That was new territory. And, and there was another exchange that I was uh, really intrigued by, which is when, I think it was Secretary Raffensperger said, basically said he's being um, seduced by all these social media theories. And he said, look, you're, I, I, you know, and with all due respect, you're listening too much to social media. And he goes, no, I'm not. I'm listening to Trump media. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I picked up on that too. Yeah, and that just shows you, uh, gives you a window of, of the echo chamber that, that, you know, I think we all know voters and, and elected officials, you know, fall into that, but like the president of the United States. Let's go through some of these claims that the president was promoting and he heard on, you know, quote, Trump media. Thousands of dead people voted. Thousands of people who were out of state voted illegally, scanned uh, Atlanta election workers, scanned 18,000 forged ballots three times. Uh, just like go through and, some uh, of these. Don't forget the, all the ballots that are being shredded. Oh, yeah. The which Fulton, he kept talking well, about. And the Fulton County video. I want to just walk us through each of these claims and what the truth is about them. Let's start with the dead people voting. Yeah, the dead people voting claim has come up um, not just in this election, but it's it's a favorite kind of retread theory. And look, in Georgia, we've had the history of dead people voting in elections that actually helped, uh, you know, getting to the bottom that actually helped Jimmy Carter decades ago win a state Senate seat that ultimately led him to the governorship and then the presidency. So unfortunately, there is a history way back when of dead people voting in Georgia elections. But in this case, as Brad Raffensperger said in the call, there's no evidence of any sort of widespread. There's an isolated, I think he, he mentioned two incidences that they knew about. One of them was thoroughly debunked. It, it turned out it was um, uh, the wife of someone who died and um, it was just a mistake she made. She was voting for herself, but for some reason it was under her name. Um, but again, you know, you're talking about one incident. And the out-of-state voters? Yeah, out-of-state voters, this stems back from, honestly, I, I think part of it stems back from Democrats, uh, left-leaning voter registration groups sending out voter registration cards and, and er, pleas to vote to just anyone who's on the state's voter list. And some of those people, you know, they might have been in college. They, they, for whatever reason, they might have out-of-state addresses. And so that got around social media and suddenly it became thousands of people who don't live in Georgia are illegally voting. And of course, people who live in, who don't live in Georgia vote all the time. They could be in college. They could be um, living out of state for, for reasons. They could be um, absent, uh, military overseas ballots. All that is part of that whole sphere of, of voting. So, uh, but again, same thing with that. There has been all sorts of reports and investigations, but no evidence of any sort of out of state scheme here to influence the election. What about the uh, Fulton County video? President spent a lot of time on that. Walk us through what the truth is about that. Yeah, it was kind of interesting to listen to that part too, because our the AJC w was owned by the same company that owns uh, that owned WSB TV, the the dominant uh, broadcast station here. And uh, the, the, the secretary and his attorney pointed the president to video that WSB shot after that after an accusation that that Fulton you know, the ballots were coming out of the ceilings and out of suitcases in Fulton County. The secretary invited WSB cameramen in to go see review hours of footage. And what they found was that basically it was selective editing and that the claims that troves of ballots were being removed from suitcases, in fact, they were just they were just boxes where those ballots were being held. There was nothing illegal. There was nothing illicit about it. They weren't these weren't suitcases that were snuck in in the dark of night. And there was not only is it not snuck in, in the dark of night, there was 
cameras and election observers there during the first part of the counting. So if you're going to do something like that, you you wouldn't do it in the, one of the biggest Democratic strongholds in full view of several TV cameras. And the president claimed that there was a water main break or a claim of a water break that caused everybody to have to leave and then these Democratic poll workers came back and pulled these boxes of ballots, or he, I think the president said suitcases of ballots out from under the table. There was a water main break um, at Phillips Arena uh, where the, some of this ballot tabulating was going on, but it was disclosed, the media reported it even that night, and election observers were, were made aware of it. Uh, and again, there's no sort of, uh, <laughs> there's, there, the, the state and federal elections officials have said there's there's no evidence of any sort of wrongdoing here that would have, that would change the legit counting of voting. I've got uh, two more quick ones. One is the president remains obsessed with the Dominion voting machines that uh, they were spirited away, and and then he talked about I guess the kind of inner workings of the machines that were changed. Anything to that, Greg? <laughs> you know the. <laughs> The, the strangest part of all this is that it was, you know, all these, the Dominion voting systems, the absentee ballot process, because that's, that's been another focus of the president's ire, um, all these were passed and approved and, and really championed by Republican administrations and Republican-led majorities in the state of Georgia. And when it comes to the voting machine system, um, that was passed over the last two years by Republicans um, at the, uh, with you know, at the opposition of Democrats, with some vocal criticism from Democrats who are worried about the new touchscreen voting systems and that they could be at risk. So the president's attacking basically what the state GOP majority adopted with little, with, with not too much internal debate. And uh, I don't know where these Venezuela claims are coming from, but same thing. You know, they have been so thoroughly debunked. Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelan administration have nothing to do with the Dominion uh, or had nothing to do with the Dominion systems. And there's no algorithms that are stealing away millions of votes. It's something that Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, two pro-Trump attorneys, have been really hammering home at events. I was at one event in Alpharetta, which is a pretty moderate-leaning suburb in, in North Atlanta, and I expected 50, 100 people to show up. I just expected a few you know, gadflies to just kind of wonder what's going on. It was the biggest Republican event I've been to all year that didn't involve Mike Pence or President Trump in Georgia. Um, it was more than 1,500 people showed up. They cheered as Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell talked about this Dominion scandal that doesn't exist. There were some ballots shredded, but those were from previous elections. Is that right? Yeah, they're either from previous elections or one case there was a video of a of a county elections worker who shredded something and the video went viral and the poor guy had to go into hiding. He left town, he got a hotel for a few nights, he was getting death threats and in all sorts of intimidation on social media. And it wasn't for a few days where we got the full story from him. Uh, it turns out he was just shredding basically instructions, you know, of, of how to fill out a ballot that one of the voters like left in, left in his, in a ballot envelope. And, you know, nothing, right? Nothing to do with the actual ballot. But the misinformation on social media turned it into, hey, what's this guy doing? It looks like he's doing something sketchy. And before you know it, he was being accused of shredding ballots. You mentioned Lynn Wood, who's uh, quite a character. And he, I've been looking at his Twitter feed, and it's just absolutely 
off the wall. Uh, he's made these claims about Chief Justice Roberts having something to do with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, he's uh, said uh, Pence should be executed for treason after the lawyers for the Justice Department on Pence's behalf uh, responded to that lawsuit uh, claiming that Pence could do something to reject the votes. I mean, what? I mean, Lynn Wood has been around Georgia for years. He was Richard Jewell's lawyer. Um, we and, covered him back in the day, and he yeah. seemed like a respectable lawyer. I and you know, we covered Richard Jewell. it seems like he's gone completely bonkers. Yeah, I mean, look, I've got, I'll just be honest, I've got text messages with him just a year ago um, talking about the Richard Jewell movie because we both agreed we didn't like it. <laughs> so we were going back and forth on Twitter, and he reached out to me saying how, you know, that he agrees with me on this stance. And we have this, like, very, not, not long ago, a year ago, this very good back and forth. One of his former law partners is a Democrat who had just announced she was she was running for the state house, and he was talking about how much he appreciated her, even though they they differ on some views. What a great character she is, and and you know, lauding all this praise on her, and it's a different person. And like I'm, I, you know, there there are serious questions. Serious people in Georgia are wondering what happened. Is it something that physically that happened or mentally that happened to him, or is he just loving this this spotlight because everything he tweets now is getting thousands of retweets and likes, and you know it can get to people's heads. Uh, I don't know what happened, but it's been this like object of fascination and revulsion at once um, because he he had such a storied legal career in Georgia, and now he's the face of the like the extreme conspiracy theories and, and, and calling for just vile things, promoting QAnon conspiracies, all this terrible stuff on his Twitter feed. You got a big day tomorrow with the uh, Georgia runoffs. Uh, how does it look right now? Well, um, Republicans have a big hole to fill. There's more than 3 million people have already voted and everyone agrees that Democrats have an advantage. We're not sure how many votes advantage. Um, most people I've talked to think about 200,000 votes, which means Republicans have a, have a pretty steep climb ahead of them. You know, this is the same dynamic in November where Democrats jumped out to a, a, a big advantage when it came to mail-in ballots in particular, and Republicans mostly closed the gap. They, they did on down-ballot races. They did not in the presidential race. So they've got to work cut out for them, especially when it comes to like North, North and Northwest Georgia. Those are areas where voter participation is particularly lagged behind the November rate. And that's why President Trump is heading here to Dalton, where I am, uh, in a few hours to come rally Republican voters here to get them back out to the polls. Well, how nervous are Republicans in Georgia about the president's visit to Georgia and the rally he's going to hold and this scandal uh, around the telephone call? To what extent do they think this is going to hurt? Yeah, I mean, the honest ones are worried. They want him to do kind of what he did December 5th when he came last time. He said a few nice things about Senators Leffler and Purdue and spent the rest of the speech talking about himself, but at least they got that, right? At least they got, you know, a couple of takeaway comments that they could put on TV and, and rally the base with. They're hoping for that, too. They know that he's going to spend most of his speech attacking Raffensperger and Governor Kemp and, and other Republicans and touting his own, um, uh, you know, claims of election irregularities. But they want at least, you know, a couple of nice words for the two for the two Senate incumbents. And it's not clear what he'll do. I mean, I expect him to say nice things about them, but he could just, uh, you know, throw a bomb in the middle of the Republican Party right now and just, for, uh, things are already very tense, and he could just hype that tonight with his rally. So there's a less high-profile race coming up in, I guess, a couple of years. 
and that is the Secretary of State, Raffsenberger, is going to be up for re-election. I don't know if he's going to run again, but uh, I would have to think that uh, he would be very high on Donald Trump's list of people to primary or find (laughs) someone to primary. So uh, what's your prediction of, of what might happen there? He might have replaced Governor Kemp at being the top of the list right now, because Governor Kemp was up there, too. I mean, he's called for Governor Kemp to resign. He's invited Doug Collins to challenge him. He said all these terrible things about the governor as well. But Raffensperger, after the tape was released, might be be public enemy number one for President Trump right now. And look, I think you're right. There's an open question about whether or not he even runs again, because um, he's going to face a Republican primary challenge. His best case scenario is he he faces, you know, five or six or seven or eight, you know, and splits the field and maybe gets into a runoff against one of the candidates and squeaks by. Um, but Democrats are not going to come running to him, right? I mean, you know, he he offers his own reminders that um, he, he goes after Stacey Abrams-led groups and, and throws out some red meat every so often to the Republican base. I don't think it's going to be en- enough to shoot But it's him. really, it's amazing because, you know, you would think in a normal world, he could say, I stood up for Georgia voters to keep them from being disenfranchised by a president who was trying to overturn a fair election, right? You know, I mean, there's a good story there. In a normal world, and and maybe in a general election that could work, but in a Republican primary in Georgia, and you know, the other big question is, who knows what Trump's lasting power will be by, you know, middle of 2022 when we have this primary. But as it stands right now, he's the single most, you know, popular Republican figure. And even if he lost the state in the Republican Party, um, he still dominates in Georgia. So it'll be very hard for either he or Lieutenant Governor Duncan or Governor Kemp to run against a Trump-backed opponent or even someone who, like, you know, uh, suggest he's Trump back, even if he doesn't have the, the president's and endorsement. Back to the runoffs really quickly. You think that the Democrats have a real shot right now at sweeping? You mean statewide offices? Oh, you mean, uh, you mean, you mean the, the runoffs, runoffs tomorrow? The runoffs. <laughs> I think the Democrats have a shot. Um, it's yeah. going to be very close. Everyone believes the polls. And, you know, Georgia's one of the few places where the polls were relatively on. I mean, you know, we had pretty much every poll, including the AJC's polls, showed a gridlock, showed a deadlock. And it was a deadlock. It was 12,000 votes. You can't get much closer than that margin. And so the analysts, and I've been talking all morning on my drive up to Dalton, I, had, I made about eight phone calls to different to different operatives, and they all pretty much said, yeah, this thing could, could come down to a coin flip. Republicans think they're up by one. Um, Democrats think they're up by one. Some Democrats are pessimistic. Some Republicans are pessimistic. It's really interesting because some Republicans are already trying to seed the ground. Like, if we lose, you you know why, Greg, right? You know why. It's Trump. So they're already trying to plant that seed, which doesn't need to be planted. I, I was just going to say, this is my last question for you. Uh, if it really is close, what is the likelihood that the losing party will simply accept the results and we won't have challenges like this one that the president has made going on for weeks on end. <laughs> Unlikely. Uh, we wrote a, a front page story a, a couple Sundays ago saying that what we faced in Georgia after the November election, all the drama, all the dubious lawsuits, all the all the false you know claims, all the misinformation was just a taste of what could be coming if, if the margins are close. So, you know, if, if the margins are tight at all, 
Uh, we don't expect candidates to concede anytime soon. We expect legal battles, and so do the campaigns. They're flying down. I, I, I'm just saying I, I, this is pretty significant. What you're saying here, which means that we may not know which party controls the United States Senate and who's the Senate Majority Leader for weeks on end if there are contested results of this election, which you're saying is very likely to happen. Yeah, and look, there's a parallel to that, is that in Georgia, just just a few weeks ago, it took 10 days for the networks to call the state, right? So it was a very long time. There was three different tallies of the votes, of five billion votes. There was the first one, of course, and there was a recount, and there was an audit. So there's three separate tallies and lots of lawsuits in between. They were all pretty much all got rejected, um, but lots of, you know, lots of consternation in between. And yeah, so I don't, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say, and, and state officials see that as the doomsday scenario, but they think it's a fairly likely doomsday scenario, unfortunately. Well, if, uh, if that happens, we're gonna have to, Isikoff, we're gonna have to try to put Greg on contract here yeah. for <laughs> <laughs> We will definitely be back to you, uh, but uh, thanks for your reporting and, uh, you know, have fun tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> night. Okay. On that note. <laughs> right. Keep Take up care. the great work. We now have with us Congressman Adam Kinzinger from Illinois, one of the few Republicans who has been speaking out against what the president is trying to do. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. Great to be on Skullduggery. Well, uh, no shortage of it uh, these days. Let's start out with uh, the president's uh, phone call to uh, Secretary of State of Georgia. It's now been the audio. We've all listened to it. You have called it obviously beyond the pale, appalling, and that to every member of Congress considering objecting to the election results, you cannot, in light of this, do so with a clean conscience. Have you uh, broken through to any of your colleagues Wow, I said all that? No, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think a week ago, or maybe a little less than that, when we'd started kind of having conversations among the Republicans, I think we were at a, like almost the dam breaking, right? But we had some conversations uh, for the whole conference, and I think it started to stem the bleeding a little bit. I think people are recognizing that, you know, when you watch your certain, certain news sources, and it seems like everything is just you know, everybody's going to vote to object. And then you hear people that make a pretty solid case for why it's not constitutional, why there's a bad precedent. I think it has gotten through. Now, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen with way too many people. But I think we've made some progress. And, and that's the reason I've chosen to be so outspoken. How many of your colleagues will object to the election result on Wednesday? And also just take it, take us through how you expect this to play out. Will there be objections to all six states, so conceivably 12 hours of debate, or will just be one? What do you, how, how many, and what do you expect to happen? Yeah, so in terms of how many, that's something we're trying to figure out. I mean, obviously, the first tell will be Arizona, because I guess they go by alphabetical order. And I don't know if the plan is for all six or just one to make a statement. I think either way, you know, it's not good. But especially if we if we roll into all six of them, that's pretty bad. And uh, in terms of the numbers, like how many, you know, I, I think the number of 140 was accurate. And I, I would still say maybe close to that. But I also think we are making some progress in terms of, you know, talking to people about the real precedent of this. And so it may actually end up coming lower than that. And it, again, it's sad that 
you know, I know in the past there have been one or two objectors, three or four, that it is what it is. But, you know, to have to even be talking anywhere near 100, anywhere near 50 is, is crazy. But, you know, if we can make some progress, it's good. Well, let me follow up on that, Congressman, because at the end of the day, as you talk to these members who have said that they are going to object to the election and as uh, maybe some of them start to change their minds, what do you think their motivation is? Do you think it's entirely political calculation and they feel they need to be loyal to Donald Trump? They're worried a bit about being primaried? Or do you think we've gotten to a point in our political culture where more and more people and including people who hold elective office are beginning to really buy into disinformation and conspiracy theories? I think it's to, to a small extent, it's the latter. I think there are some that are, you know, looking at Twitter and buying into all this, this stuff and not doing their own research. I mean, you know, members of Congress are human too. They're just as, just as uh, susceptible to misinformation. It takes research to debunk something. It doesn't take any research to see misinformation thrown in your face. And so I think that's some of it. I think the majority, though, that would vote for it, it's more of a political survival. And they kind of see this as... It's going to be no harm, no foul. I kind of get through this. The reality and the point we're trying to make to people is, you know, this isn't a debate on something Donald Trump said or even a policy issue. This is massively important to the future of the country because it will set a press. Everything out here has a precedence and it will set a precedence. And uh, so I think a lot of them, it's just political survival. They're scared of the base. They look at Twitter too much. Twitter doesn't represent reality. But if you're looking at that and wondering if you'll win your election, Maybe it does, and it frightens some people. What did you find most disturbing about the president's phone call with Secretary of State Raffensperger? So what I actually, I mean, a lot of it was disturbing, obviously. The thing that I thought was kind of more disturbing than anything was just how he was repeating conspiracy theories that I know have been debunked. You know, I've done a lot of work trying to learn the latest conspiracy theory and do my own research. And when he talks about, you know, the ballots being thrown out of the military ballots and all these things, that's all stuff that's been debunked. You know, this overseas ballot, it's not just military. It also includes expats that live overseas that typically vote Democratic. And so um, I, that was, to me, very disturbing was just, you know, where is he getting his information from? And, of course, the threats to the Secretary of State, the veiled threats of law action is, is frightening. And, uh, and, of course, you know, trying to convince him to just find 11,000 votes. So you think that uh, Trump actually believes a lot of these conspiracy theories, that for him it's not just about political survival? I don't know. And I think there are some he may believe. I think for him, though, it's all about, you know, you don't like to lose. Nobody likes to lose. But, you know, a lot of us know that if you lose, you may try to defend it and say it's somebody else, but eventually you take responsibility. And I think he knows he's not going to be president again. And he wants to be able to live the rest of his life with the accusation that it was stolen. And he really did win. And I think that's as much part of it as anything. It's just that like pride and, and arrogance. Can you recount to us a conversation that you've had with one of these members of Congress who was planning to object to the election results and maybe has changed his or her mind? Just tell us what that, you know, you appeal to their conscience, I assume. What's that conversation like? Well, I had one one individual that, you know, told me he appreciated me speaking out and I'm right. And, 
you know, and, and I think he will actually end up in the long run voting the right way, but he was him hauling about the fact that his district, you know, and look, I mean, the reality is if you have 75% of your district demanding you do one thing, there's an argument to be made that you should. It all depends on what your view of representation is. But my view is you uphold the constitution and, but he mentioned, you know, this could cost me my election. Everybody wants me to do this. And I understand it, but there's very few things out here that are really kind of, we, you know, we always loosely throw around that we swore on an oath, right? It's powerful and everything. And I swore on an oath, so I'm going to lower taxes or raise taxes. Well, the oath has nothing to do with that. But this is one of those things that I think really does violate the oath you swore on. And you see people like Mark Levin making their case, and their case is just bonkers. Since you've started speaking out about this, have you heard from the president himself, either directly or indirectly? Tell us about your own um, conversations that you've had with um, President Trump. So I've had good conversations with him in the past because they're usually on issues of foreign policy where I'm disagreeing with him. And and there was seemed to be a little kind of mutual respect. He has not addressed my outspokenness here. Don't know why. Don't really care. But I'll tell you, everything I'm hearing is that he's really freaking out generally. And I mean, look, it's not a big surprise, you know, with the things that happened with COVID and a whole bunch of other stuff, him losing is not a huge surprise. And we won the House because people voted for Biden and Republican down ticket. But I haven't had any personal conversations with him. And in fact, the interesting thing is the people that I thought would text me and say, you jerk, what are you doing? have actually been the ones that are texting me being like, yeah, you're right, keep it up, which was surprising, actually. When you say he's freaking out, what are you referring to? I think it's just the recognition that he lost, that he's out of office in 20 days, and now it's this fever pitch thing of how do I preserve my reputation? Uh, maybe he believes that there's some magic thing that can happen that can't on January 6th. I don't know, but I think it's just that recognition. If you're, uh, if you're somebody that is so focused on yourself and everything comes through the lens of yourself and you're all of a sudden facing the biggest defeat you've ever faced, it's tough to deal with. Congressman, you may have seen the news today that uh, two Democratic members of Congress, Ted Lieu of California and Kathleen Rice of New York, have asked the FBI to review President uh, Trump's phone call to the Georgia officials for possible violations, election fraud or soliciting election fraud. Do you think the FBI ought to review that call, whether or not crimes are committed? At least should it, should that call be reviewed? So I'm not going to I'm not punting here when I say this, but I, I don't know what that threshold is. And uh, I don't know if it if it's a different threshold for a president because you hear a lot about presidential immunity and discussions and i just don't know i do think though obviously if the law was violated it should be pursued i mean everybody should be held to the same standard in this country and so i'll leave that to the fbi to make the decision i'm, I'm certain that if they do if they are concerned about it that they will review it you said over the weekend that the president's attempts to sort of rile up his base and encouraging them to come to Washington for Wednesday could lead people to be driven to violence. And you also called it a scam. What the president is doing is a, a gifting scam. Address that. How worried are you about the possibility of violence on Wednesday? And what did you mean by calling this a scam? So I am worried because, you know, as a Christian myself, I've seen some of these people on 
Twitter, you know, that call themselves pastors or that are pastors that claim, you know, God told them this is going to happen and God told them they have to do this. So you can think about it from that perspective or the perspective of somebody that really, truly, I mean, it's not irrational if you really believe this election was stolen by a deep state. Obviously, that is irrational. But if you believe that, it's not irrational in a way to say, well, let's go stand up for this. So that's what I worry about on that. And I hope not, but it is a concern. I know it's a concern at, at all levels, quite honestly. But on the scam side of things, it's a scam. I mean, the president has raised more money on this than I think he did during the election almost or something. You think about the hardworking you know, Americans, these Republicans that vote for me that I represent, that uh, you know, are so invested in the future of this country. God bless them for that. But they're writing checks that in some cases are tough to afford because they believe in it that much to give it to a millionaire or to, you know, the, the other folks that are out there raising money on this, making amazing videos about how they're going to object, standing in front of adoring crowds to get the applause. It's a scam. And there's not a single person that is part of this that actually thinks this has a chance in Hades. Nobody. But nevertheless, Congressman, on on Wednesday, I guess it looks like, what, more than half of your caucus um, in the House will vote to contest this election. You have been tweeting using the hashtag RestoreRGOP. How optimistic are you that the GOP that you have been part of for a long time and love will be restored to a place where you think it, it, it should be? And if it's not, would you consider leaving the party? So in the first question, I'm somewhat optimistic because I think generally parties have to kind of moderate to still represent half the country. And I think, you know, we did better among minorities, yes, but we're losing a terminal group, which is young people. So eventually that has to come back. I think when President Trump is out of office and he loses the megaphone he has, people are going to kind of, it's like Saturday morning hangover, wake up and wonder what you did Friday night. And uh, so I think to one extent that's going to happen in terms of a third party option. You know, look, if this party continues down this path, then I think there's going to be room for a new party. The problem is the barriers to such are so high. For instance, in Illinois, if you want to get on the ballot as an independent, which you would have to do before a party is established, it's like 20,000 petition signatures, whereas otherwise it's like 1,500. So you look at the state barriers to that. I think it's a difficult and a tough road to hoe. My focus right now is bringing the GOP, not to necessarily the GOP that it's always been, but one that actually respects Constitution, can talk to each other again, and believes in American strength around the world. Did you vote for President Trump? I did, yeah. I didn't in 2016, and I did in 2020. And I get asked this a lot. And, you know, look, I, I made the decision based on, on policy, but I think there was a massive demarcation that happened after the election. Before the election, a disagreement with a president is based on policy, tone, you know, all those things. After an election, when you start to question the legitimacy of the, the election and uh, threaten the, the underpinnings of democracy, that's a real demarcation line. Well, having seen uh, the president's conduct over the last couple of months, do you, in retrospect, regret that vote? Well, look, I, I, I would say if I knew everything I knew now, I'd probably think differently. I mean, honestly, mm -hmm. with, the, with the challenges that are happening now, I don't blame myself for having voted for him. He's like on a policy wise, we, we agree more than we don't. But my goodness, where we're at now is just a whole new level of, of, mm -hmm. of understanding. 
You know, although, Congressman, a lot of people, you know, listened to the phone call and thought of the phone call with the Ukrainian President Zelensky that got the president impeached. Very similar in many ways, pressuring somebody to do something that they shouldn't have been be involved in. You didn't vote to impeach the president. You voted against impeachment. Looking back on it now, do you regret that vote? Well, because, and I think it's good that you brought this up because I've been seeing you know, chatter of people that say, well, so-and-so speaking out, but they voted against impeachment. Here's the reality of what happened on impeachment. I went into that with a completely open mind on it. I really did. I said, if I believe that the case is made, I will vote to impeach. That is my responsibility. But I don't think anybody can doubt, you know, when we were facing a deadline up, we had to get him impeached before Christmas. And then you had a rush in the hearings Uh, That really showed me that the Democrats were not as much interested in taking the time necessary to get this thing out and lay everything out. It was more about getting it done on a timeline. So I don't have any regrets for voting against impeachment because I think impeachment is a very sacred thing that should be done very rarely. And then when you do it, you should be laying out a solid case preempting that. I know uh, we've got to let you go, but I've got one last question I wanted to ask, going back to something you touched on before. You know, sort of at the root of all of this is the idea that you know the truth is no longer sacred, that we don't have a kind of a common set of objective facts that we can all rely on. And you know these conspiracy theories and this disinformation is kind of the, the oxygen that uh, people that you know for people who want to kind of tear down our uh, democracy depend on. What do you think we should do about this? This is a very huge challenge that we're facing, but it's one that you're thinking about and dealing with on a daily basis. What should and can be done? So I think government, from a government perspective, we have to really look at when do we cross into from free speech into yelling fire in a theater, right? That's not something I can answer now because I don't know, but I think it's something we have to start thinking about because it's really dangerous. I think there's a responsibility on leaders like me and media members like you. So on the media side, being a source of of good, solid information and letting people digest that, right? You guys do that well. On the leadership side, so, you know, we've obviously seen the media just go berserk on either side. On the leadership side, we have got to get away from this absolute constant concern about the next election and start telling people the truth. It is sad that I am one of the few, if not only members of the House, as outspoken as I am on something so big. So, and then on the members of the public, it's a responsibility on you if you get something sent to you on Facebook or you know your grandma said or whatever it is, do your own research. If it seems outrageous, trust me, 99% of the time, it's completely fake. Media literacy is a huge part of the uh, Yeah, if a website looks I official, agree. it doesn't make it official. Yep. I've got one last granular question about Wednesday. You've said you're concerned about the prospect of violence. Have there been any security steps that are being taken? Are there security steps being taken to ensure that there's uh, that all House members can leave the enter and leave the chamber unobstructed? Uh, and and yourself as being one of those who's outspoken, have you? gotten any threats that are concerning to you? Uh, you know, I've gotten threats on Twitter and stuff and, and uh, you know, but in terms of being concerned, I'm not personally, 
I've been through some more threatening situations, but in terms of uh, out here, I'm sure they're taking some massive steps to make sure this is, this is okay. Uh, that's our hope. And, uh, but I'm sure they're probably not going to announce a lot of that until either the day of or after it was done. So for me, I'm just going to do what I think is right because uh, I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror at the end of all this. Well, stay safe. Uh, something we usually uh, say to people who are getting out there yeah. into uh, war zones or something. But uh, in your case, maybe that's what you're headed to. Stay <laughs> safe. We need you. We need to get you back on the podcast. That's right. So st stay safe. All right. Thanks, All right. Congressman. Thanks so much. Thank you.